News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's update you now on what is happening over in Russia. In the last 24 hours, things there have really changed. We're hearing stories that large numbers of Russians were rushing to book one-way tickets out of the country. That news coming after the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, announced a partial mobilization of military reservists to fight the war in Ukraine. Flights filled up really quickly. And there's not sure if anything is even remaining at this point, but there is concern that that may impact the borders that Russia may decide to shut those down if this turns into a bigger problem. But let's talk about what is happening. Joining us now is Jeff McCausland, a CBS military analyst. Jeff, thanks for being back with us. Simi, it's a great pleasure to be with you. What has changed here in Russia? Like, Did that surprise you to hear that message from Vladimir Putin? Not really. I mean, Mr. Putin had really two options. One, he could escalate, uh, or number two, he could have his propaganda machine start churning out how successful the Russians had been, declaring they had captured territory, denazified, spanked the Ukrainians, and perhaps called for a ceasefire to kind of freeze this in place as he tries to retrofit his forces, having lost up to 100,000 casualties over the last seven months. He chose the former and decided to escalate in several ways, one with the calling up of forces, as you suggest, <clears throat> second of all, kind of rattling his nuclear saber, saying that, you know, Russia would use all meat uh, to defend the existence and calling this a threat to the very existence of Russia. I think that also is to motivate the population, though. And then thirdly, uh, the Russians are going to commence here in the next day or so these so-called sham referendums, uh, whereby they will formally annex the territories they have occupied down in southeastern Ukraine, making that part of the Russian Federation. So is this a, a turning point then? Do you think we've seen protests happen, like protests really ramped up yesterday? We've seen so so far this process not going very well. So will this change anything, do you think? Well, it could certainly. What Mr. Putin has been trying to do for the last seven months is insulate the population from any of the effects of the war. And the Russians have been basically, I think, pretty apathetic about the whole thing. Early on, there was some dissent, and about 10,000 people or more were put into jail. Those were obviously more on the left side of the equation. And we know in the demonstrations that have occurred in the last 24, 36 hours, about 1,600 people uh, have been arrested. There's supposedly a petition that has over 180,000 signatures calling for an end to this particular war. Um, But he seems to have that situation under control, as you rightfully point out. Uh, The cost of flying out of Russia has now skyrocketed and all the flights departing are booked and there is also a very high level of traffic as russians depart across the finnish border into finland and this is contributes to young men in a, in a brain drain that russia has been suffering as well since this war began and whether or not this will tip the scales into large-scale social unrest remains to be seen i think part of the reason he's doing a so-called partial mobilization of only 300,000 of his now two million reservists I think it's a suggestion that he's moving along uh, <clears throat> gently in terms of causing or trying to avoid the possibility of large-scale social unrest and also giving him some room to escalate more uh, if, if this doesn't turn out to give him greater success on the battlefield. Right. So how long of a time do you think this gives him in terms of he needs to see some success and he needs to see it soon? Or is this an opportunity for Ukraine to really push back before this can get organized? I think a bit of both. I think the Ukrainians will try to push as hard as they can for the next sort of six weeks. I think the other thing Mr. Putin is banking on is his ally, Old Man Winter. And when Old Man Winter shows up, 
uh, in November, uh, it's very likely we're going to see this battlefield front kind of become stagnant because of snow, ice, and the inability to move large units and large materiel. And that'll give him three or four months to stabilize the front, stabilize and reinforce his forces, perhaps. But that's a pretty staggering task to try to mobilize 300,000 people, equip them, get them into units, et cetera. Um, and also he's hoping, I think, or believing that during that winter, we'll start seeing more social unrest, quite frankly, in Western Europe based on shortages of energy, skyrocketing energy costs in places like Britain and Germany as well, which will encourage uh, European governments to fragment within NATO and apply more pressure to Mr. Zelensky to come to the negotiating table in a fashion that Mr. Putin would find attractive. Jeff, that is a classic Russian tactic, though, is it not? Using winter to try to gain an advantage? Oh, absolutely. And absolutely, without question. And what Mr. Putin is also doing here is what the Russians call hybrid warfare, using all the different mechanisms at his disposal, not only his military option, <coughs> a threat of nuclear weapons or increased manpower, but the energy weapon. He's been striking at, at civilian energy infrastructure in Ukraine. These pressure points at the nuclear power plant also serve to intimidate and have the effect of almost intimidating like nuclear weapons without the backblast. He knows that will force the Europeans, perhaps, to have to share more energy with Ukraine because Ukraine's losing energy because of the closure of those plants. It may also set off, and I think he's hoping for this, another large-scale refugee crisis. As the winter sets in, the Ukrainians in the eastern part of the country, deprived of energy, living in homes that are largely damaged, may also then become a refugee flow, placing more pressure on the Europeans as well. Jeff, thanks so much for explaining it to us this morning. We appreciate that. My pleasure. That's Jeff McCausland, who's a CBS military analyst, talking about the moves in Russia over the last 24 hours and the impact that is having. Lots of people watching around the world now to see how the Russian people are going to react to all of this. So we'll be following that story. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Mara Rajasilhal had a big day yesterday, and she joined us now to tell us all about it. Hi. Hi, Simi. Good morning. Yeah, it was an awesome night. In fact, my face hurts still the next morning from smiling so hard. So my kid started her school career last year, right? When she started kindergarten and she had a terrific time in kindergarten. She'd come up, you know, come home every day with all these stories and things that she saw and she learned what she loved. But it's always been a mystery to us uh, because we've never stepped foot in her actual school before because of the pandemic restrictions. So last night was her school's first open house since 2019. And it was wonderful. It was just so terrific to see her music classroom and to see her gymnasium, which, by the way, very small, unless I'm remembering things wrong from when I was a kid. <laughs> You're just now much bigger. That's all. <laughs> yeah, it might be that. And we got to meet the librarian. My kid loves books, loves reading. So it was just really special to talk to the teachers in person, to put faces to names. And I just, it made me realize, you know, we are coming out of still, there are some lingering pandemic restrictions, but coming out of that and going back into what people call the after times, I don't think we're processing kind of what we went through and what we have to look forward to. You think so? You think we don't appreciate that this is diff that we, we appreciate this more now, given what we went through? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Yeah, as I was talking to different parents, and as there wasn't this, uh, you know, constant uh, fear of am I going over my time? Am I, you know, looking around, making sure that, uh, you know, you have enough distance with everybody and this kind of thing? It was just a relaxed atmosphere last night. It was terrific to be able to just have a visual for where my kid goes to school. I didn't want to complain before. So I just kind of like sucked it up and acted like it didn't matter that we didn't know what her environment looked like. It does matter. It absolutely matters. We've been missing so much over the pandemic times and with all the restrictions. I totally validate and agree with how those uh, restrictions kept people safe. Understand all that. I'm just saying we missed out and now I have mega appreciation for how wonderful it is to be face to face with people again and to be in those environments. You know what's so interesting about that, Raji, is that that is such a we feel like or maybe it seems like a very small thing right? To just go into a classroom and see where your child goes to school. Probably something that we always did. And we completely took that for granted because it's only now that you appreciate deeply that, hey, this is where my child spends like hours a day. And you do need to see that. Yeah, totally. You know, she showed us her cubby where her name is and she proudly showed us what their routine is every day. They they go from one station to the next. And I was flooded with all these um, images from my own kindergarten and grade one classrooms um, when I was a kid. And I started remembering all these things. And probably if I hadn't been in the physical environment of those hallways and stuff, I probably wouldn't have had those flashbacks. And it just made it so much more special to understand what environment she's in. They practice Practically had to kick me out, Simi. I was having such a good time. Yeah, and this morning they'd be like, "Did you see that mom last night who wouldn't leave the classroom? Did you? See, what For was that sure. all about?" Who was just a little too eager in meeting everyone, you know, because they haven't heard about me, obviously. I'm just some kid's mom, but I have heard so much about her grade one teacher, about the librarian, about the music teacher. And these are the building block years for learning. Kids who, it's studies have shown that kids who have a good early educational experience tend to do better. Well, one. I just want to say that I'm also impressed to hear about a school that still has a librarian and a music teacher in this day and age. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And guess what? They both listen to CKNW. Oh, well, let's give them a shout out to all the librarians and music teachers out there. Thank you very much for that, Raji. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. That's our Raji Sohal there. Yeah, shout out to all the people heading to school today, whether it's parents, teachers, librarians, music teachers, or the kids. Everybody, have a good day at school today. We have a lot to talk about on our show. We've got a chance to win Luke Holmes tickets. We're talking about going cashless and whether that sits okay with you. This is Mornings with Simi. I don't know if the Commodore Ballroom realized this was going to be such a big deal for so many people who go to the Commodore Ballroom, but it turns out that it is. They announced on social media they are switching to being cashless. No more cash accepted, no more cash even available, no ATMs, no nothing at the Commodore Ballroom. And it sounds like that is happening, well, has already happened. And if you look on any of their social media pages, you will see people are not happy about this. So we've been talking about it this morning, and clearly there are many, many of you out there who feel like, maybe this is post-pandemic, but feel like cash just gives you more control and you feel better having that around. But let's talk more about that restaurant bar experience. Are more of them going cashless? Joining us now is Jeff Guinard, who's the Executive Director of the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Is this becoming more and more common? Are, Are these businesses choosing to go cashless? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from our perspective, this is honestly just a 
result of a general trend we have seen uh, throughout the pandemic and, and afterwards of people using cash less and less frequently. So, you know, we, we just look at the receipts that come in uh, and from this businesses and many others. And I, I know people are excited sometimes about the idea of it, but in practice, most customers don't want to use cash. The only places we've seen it, um, you know, in larger venues, if they happen to have artist merchandise or something like that, oftentimes they'll still accept cash. It's generally whatever the artist wanted to, to do. But when it comes to most of those transactions, there's just uh, no one using it. And, and additionally, there are quite a few legitimate business reasons why it's actually a lot easier for us to use cards. Right. Okay. So what? why then? Why is it so much better for a business to just use cards? Well, first off, if you think about what we have to do, I mean, every every till, every cash register that has cash, you have to put money in there for your float. So if you've got five cash registers with a couple hundred bucks in them, all of a sudden every day we have to have an extra $1,000 in our business. Coming out of the pandemic, people's balance sheets don't have that extra cash. But it also makes it a lot easier for us if all transactions are integrated fully into the point-of-sale system. It makes it so much easier at the end of the day to you know reconcile your transactions, right? So it saves that business time and money. One of the other things we've noticed too over the years is that you know, gratuities in the hospitality industry are a big part of a, a server's income, for example. Uh, and at the end of the day, we're spending a lot of time. If you have all, if you had cash, and back in the day, you know, when people paid more in cash, you'd spend a lot of time sorting all that out. Now, it's just easier to do it through the system, uh, and, the, and the CRI works a lot, works out a lot better as well because you know then all of your tips and gratuities are recorded as part of the payroll. Right. Okay. Has there been any, though, pushback on this, Jeff? Because it feels like more and more businesses are doing it. But certainly from what I've heard from people this morning is that not all of them like it. Yeah. You know, I'm sure not everyone likes it, but it's interesting. We've not heard a lot of negative feedback in any of the venues that I know have done this. Uh, You know, we actually have a lot of staff and a lot of uh, who no longer want to handle cash. There's a a strange perception out there from after the pandemic, rightly or wrongly, that cash is dirty, right? And people don't want to accept it as much. So we found our own staff and a lot of establishments are comfortable with it. We've also seen in some cases, you know, it has a, a bit of an impact on reducing risk of theft or, you know, some businesses found that they accidentally accepted some counterfeit uh, cash. And there's, there's not like there's any, anyone you can go see about that to have your cash converted back to regular cash, right? So they, it's just a lot of an easier flow from business. And I do know some customers are concerned about it. But if you think of, you know, going into a bar or a licensed premise, you have to have ID anyway. You know, almost everyone has a bank account or a credit card. So I, I know some customers may want to adjust in the short term, but nothing we have seen so far suggests it's going to be a significantly negative experience for anybody. Right. Is there a key, though? Like, do you have, obviously, you have to make that very clear up front if people come into your business that, hey, we are cashless. Absolutely. And I think sometimes that's that's where the reflection of the backlash, you know, from folks come from. They're like, oh, and, wow, you're not accepting cash anymore. But like, yes, that was the result of us effectively telling you that we're not taking cash. Uh, and I, you know, I was speaking to a few licensed establishments about this just yesterday. It's such a minimal number of transactions that people are still paying cash, so we, we don't expect it to, to actually have a practical impact. And they'll still expect accept a wide range of you know credit cards and debit, et cetera. And as long as everyone knows about it in advance, I expect it should go pretty smoothly. So, are you surprised then by the kind of reaction to the Commodore Ballroom announcing this? Because it seems like they're getting a lot of pushback. They, it, it is weird to signal these poor guys out from it. They're just doing what a lot of other businesses are doing anyway. And even if we don't have an official policy about it, most places are just not seeing a lot of cash transactions anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you're riding an airplane, when was the last time you paid cash on an airplane? You go to a large concert venue. Everybody is going to card li- or um, cashless card interaction. So I think it's just a result of a general trend. And it, the trend is not being enforced in the business community. It's fully a reflection of consumer habits. 
That is so interesting then. So you feel this is something that people are just going to have to get used to. Would you say it's happening more and more though? So if you haven't seen well, it yet, you're going to be seeing it. Yeah, I think it's, it's happening quite often in our businesses because we go through a fairly high volume of transactions during the course of the day. But you can look even you know high-level stats across Canada. It wasn't that long ago that about 80-some-odd percent of all transactions were in some form cash, not the, the dollar amount, but in, just in frequency of them. And then it was down to you know 60%, and now it's, it's around 30%. So cash is just being used much less frequently. Oh, so interesting. Listen, Jeff, thanks for talking to us about it. Oh, my pleasure. Have a great morning. Yeah, you too. That's Jeff Guidnard, who's the Executive Director of the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. So restaurants and pubs and so here's from the business perspective that for them, it makes sense going cashless. You heard all the arguments for it, right? Easier for them to look after. It's not, it's not fussy. It gets sorted for them. But for you, it's about control of your budget, which is a huge issue these days. You want to know if I'm going to budget very tightly to make sure I can pay all my bills. These are, this is how much money I have to go out, say, this Friday night and have a good time. And you may want to take that in cash so that you don't have the inclination to spend more. But how do you do that if more and more of these businesses are going cashless? Now, they say they haven't had much pushback that this is something that consumers, they were headed in that direction But I do wonder, hearing from you, if maybe did the pandemic change things? Did you have more of a desire to keep better control over your finances? Or did you think, you know what, it's better in emergencies just to have that cash? This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Let's talk about repeat offenders. This is a pretty hot topic right now. There's so much concern about the violence that we see happening, particularly in downtown cores. And that's all over this province. That's in a lot of different communities. So yesterday... We heard the public safety minister, Mike Farnworth, come out, talk about this, saying they have a report that's been done on this by former Deputy Vancouver Police Chief Doug Lepard, along with health researchers and criminologists. And they studied this issue of repeat offenders. They provided 28 recommendations to the province. But is this going to work? To join us now to talk more about it is Mike Morris, BC Liberal critic for public safety. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Sammy. My pleasure. What did you think about what you heard? Is there a plan there? Uh, no, it's a lot of, you know, everything that's uh, stated in that report has already been known by the communities and by the police agencies and prosecution right across the province here. I think there was a lot of disappointment amongst people. Um, you know, David Eby, uh, when he first uh, stated he was going to address this, there was expectations that there would be a solution uh, being brought forward. Um, he formed the committee and uh, the, the, the consultation was done, reports come out, and nothing new, nothing has changed. Uh, the public is still, um, you know, at risk uh, because of these prolific offenders out there. Right. One of the issues that they brought up was this pilot program that they would like to revive from 10 years ago, this repeat offender kind of program where they would kind of divert those people who are repeat offenders. 10 years ago, that would be when the BC Liberals were in power. What did you think about that? Yeah, no, that was a, uh, a very good uh, pilot program that was done. There was a report done, I believe it was Simon Fraser University Criminology Department, uh, that had some uh, recommendations in that. There were a lot, lot of agencies throughout the province that were involved in that, and uh, there was a lot of good things that came out of that. So, um, you know, it's something that uh, um, this current government, the NDP government, probably should have looked at when they uh, took over in 2017. Right. Well, why was it cancelled 10 years ago? Uh, well, it was a pilot project, so there was an end date to that project, so it could be properly evaluated, and the report was produced. And, uh, you know, I don't know what happened uh, after that report was produced, but uh, it was a pilot project. 
Right. So you're saying, I mean, it could have been continued at that time, but this is just to show you this is not a new problem, is it? No, it's not a new problem. And, you know, this is something that the police worked on, uh, you know, a long time ago. They brought in a, a program to target prolific offenders so that they could be more effective in, uh, in um, catching them and, and getting them prosecuted. Uh, but unfortunately, over the last number of years, that seems to have been, uh, you know, their efforts aren't as effective as they should be uh, for, um, for the reasons that, um, you know, lack of prosecution. Right. What do you think would work then? What do you think needs to be done? I think, you know, just like, uh, you know, every time the Supreme Court of Canada changes, uh, comes up with some new decisions and redefines law or, or, uh, or brings about some changes there, or the federal government brings about criminal code changes, the police have to change uh, to meet those standards that are set. Uh, so does the Solicitor General's office change to meet those standards. It appears here that the Attorney General's office has not made those necessary changes to uh, put resources into prosecutions to address those changes that uh, um, you know the Supreme Court has has implied. And I think what we do need in today's world is to bring dedicated prosecutors, um, you know, dedicate each prosecutor to a prolific offender if we have to go in that direction, uh, to make sure that uh, the court is seized with the information on just how dangerous that individual is and the danger that he or she presents to the public. What do you think about the mental health supports idea too? This has actually come up in the kind of Vancouver election. This issue of providing more mental health supports might also be a way of dealing with this. Yeah, no, that's that's a definite part of the solution that we need. We need to bring about a more aggressive stance for mental health treatment throughout the province here and addictions treatment as well. But that still doesn't preclude the courts and the Crown from doing their job to ensure that the public is safe from these prolific offenders. Do you think, are we headed in that direction, do you think? Did you see any signs of hope in this report or hopefully waiting to hear more about it? No, there's some good things in there. You know, they're talking about uh, having some uh, uh, mental health treatment facilities and addictions treatment facilities uh, very sorely needed in the province here, something that should have been looked at a long time ago. But, you know, the, the public uh, and the police, for that matter, are looking for immediate relief. And uh, I think that immediate relief is with the prosecution service to ensure that they, they um, bring the information before the judge so that the judge can make the proper decision on just exactly how dangerous that particular person is. Do you think the federal government has a role to play here, too? I think all levels of government have a role to play in this. Uh, you know, I'd like to see what kinds of... Uh, uh, recommendations that the Attorney General has made to the federal government for changes to the criminal code to to try and um, uh, mitigate some of these uh, problems that we have here. But uh, yeah, this is everybody's problem. It's the same right across the country. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. You bet. My pleasure. Mike Morris, BC Liberal critic for public safety, talking about what the government has been saying about repeat offenders. So Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth had that press conference yesterday and talked about, you know, reviving this pilot program that the BC Liberals had back in 2012 to deal very specifically with repeat offenders. So they've had this report done by some experts in the field, and those experts have advised them to, yes, increase mental health crisis response teams, to divert people who are accused and people who may have serious mental disorders, divert them from the criminal system, create maybe secure housing units for clients with complex mental health in order to address 
chronic criminal offenders. And that sounds like a lot, right, to deal with chronic criminal offenders. But if it helps you feel safer and this is the way to do it, then I think people would say, yes, let's get on with it. Let's do this. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. You're listening to Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. I keep saying this, it's right across BC, mark it on your calendar. You will be electing mayors, councillors, trustees. It is an important day. And one of, if not the biggest issue for so many communities is housing. You wanna be able to find good housing. You wanna be able to afford good housing. So as part of our continuing coverage on this year's elections, we have turned our attention this week to the Vancouver mayoral election. That means that we are speaking with five major candidates for mayor and talking about that all-important one issue of housing. So today we turn our attention to Ken Sim of ABC Vancouver is with us. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. Now I'm going to ask you the question I've asked everybody that I start with here. Let's talk first about your housing plan. What is it? Okay, well, it's multifaceted. First of all, we are going to make it a lot simpler to build housing in the city right across the board. The second thing we're going to do on the supportive housing side, we're going to uh, change the city's policy or um, uh, initiative of focusing on quantity of housing, and we will focus on quality of housing. And then the third thing is we're actually going to double the number of co-ops in the city uh, during our first term in office. Okay, how do you propose to do that then? So if you don't have a majority of your councillors, and this is the thing, it's easy to make promises, right? But how do you do that if you're working with other parties? Well, the first thing is uh, we are definitely going for an ABC Vancouver majority on council. That is our first goal. And I think, you know, with the support of Vancouverites and uh, the fact that we've knocked on over 50,000 doors and we've spoken to residents across our city, we feel great about our chances of getting an ABC majority. Uh, And if we don't, we will definitely work with anyone. And I think uh, we can all agree, uh, everyone uh, everyone running for office, um, for the most part, truly believes that housing is Uh, a big issue and they want to solve it. And so I think if you have pragmatic solutions, uh, they're easy to sell to uh, the councillors. Okay, so what do you mean when you say quality housing over quantity of housing? Okay, so on the supportive uh, side of uh, uh, the ledger there, um, the city of Vancouver, uh, the current mayor has focused on just, you know, big announcements announcing that we have a lot of housing uh, to take uh, people uh, off the streets, but the quality is so bad. Uh, they're rodent infested uh, in the heat of, uh, high December. They can be 45 degrees in the summertime without windows opening. They're not livable. And people like how bad do these units have to be where people would either rather, uh, uh, I, sorry, they would rather live in a tent on East Hastings than in these units. So what we're going to do is we're going to reshift the focus to providing quality units that people can and actually want to live in so we can stabilize their situation as we then focus on the provincial government to bring full wraparound services to help uh, the affected uh, individuals, uh, you know, Right. What about the other parts of the city, though? So that's dealing with the, you know, the issue of helping out people with social housing. What about people who want to live in the city and and perhaps, you know, they have kids who want to live in the city? What about those units? Yeah, you know, that's very dear to my heart. Um, So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to speed up the permitting process. 
And so to give you some frame of reference, 25 to 54% of the cost of every single new build in the city, be it a house or a condo, is due to permitting fees and delays. And if we just speed up that process, not only will we, will we reduce the cost to build, but we will also bring uh, housing to the market faster. So we have our three by three by three by one plan, where you know within our first term, we believe that we can get you a simple renovation permit within three days. Um, Within uh, uh, three weeks, if you want to build a standard home or townhome or laneway house, we can get you that permit in three weeks for uh, professionally designed mid and uh, low rise uh, um, buildings uh, within three months. And then complex, larger builds, um, we believe that we can get you a permit within one year, down from the six to 12 years that it currently takes. And if we do that, we will be able to get a lot more housing, the right housing built um, sooner so people can move in faster. Okay, I've been through the City of Vancouver process several times, and I can't even get a question answered in three days. How are you proposing to get this done? Well, okay, so let's uh, let's focus on uh, something that's a little more challenging. Uh, three weeks for uh, uh, yeah. uh, a house build. Look, uh, let's look at laneway houses. Right now, if you have a standard build, you know, if you choose a standard build that's been approved hundreds, if not thousands of times, and it's uh, asked, if you ask for that build in an area that's already approved for laneway houses, why do you even have to wait three weeks, right? Like these are things that are so simple that if you just change uh, the rules where you go, look, if, if that's your situation, you can literally download a permit um, off our website because we already know it meets all the criteria. We will still inspect. We will have our inspectors go over as you are building to make sure everything's done right. But you shouldn't have to wait eight months to two years to get a permit on a standard laneway house in an area that's already approved. What about duplexes? What about townhouses? It's the same process. Um, if these are professionally designed and you meet all the requirements of the city, we'll literally give you a checklist. Like, don't get me wrong, it will take a little bit of time to develop these checklists. They're not going to happen in our first week in office. Um, but if you have a checklist that we uh, show the developers, um, these are all the rules that you have to meet. And if they come back and it, they fill out the checklist and it's approved by a certified professional or an architect that we approve of at the city, your permit will get expedited. It's literally that simple. Okay, what about the issue of rezoning then? We've heard all this week the emphasis on the fact that 80% of the city is zoned for single family homes. What would you change, if anything, about that? Well, I think we already have a lot of stuff in the pipeline. And so we will all, always be uh, open to, uh, you know, looking at, um, you know, opportunities throughout our center uh, city. But we already have the Broadway plan, which is I, you know, we fully support. It's a great plan built on transit. You have a Sanok that's being built outside of our jurisdiction, but it's being built. Uh, you have the Jericho lands uh, up and coming. You have what's happening at 57th and Cammy, uh, Cammy Street. You have the Heatherlands. You have Oak Ridge. You have the Jewish Community Center and their rebuild. You have what's going on at the uh, the bus depot at 41st and Oak. So we already have a lot uh, in the works. Um, we can get a little uh, tighter uh, in terms of, you know, on main arterial roads, we should be building, you know, with with a few exceptions, um, you know, six stories. Um, and if, if we just focus on that, we already have a lot in the pipeline that we can bring to market. Okay. And what about, so you mentioned the Vancouver plan there. So do you, you support that? 
Yeah, I, I, so I mentioned the Broadway plan. Um, uh, yeah, we support the Broadway plan. Now, um, it, it ticks a lot of boxes. It's on transit, so we can actually provide more affordable transportation and, um, you know, um, you know, uh, mobility uh, to people that wor- uh, live and work in uh, along the line. It's great for local businesses. You know, businesses survive if you have more people in a certain area. It's great for the environment. It takes people out of cars and gives them options as opposed to uh, Kennedy Stewart's road tax penalizing people uh, for needing to get around the city. And so it also, um, you know, provides more housing options, more attainable housing options for all sectors of the market. So people can, you know, live in our city and work in our city in the future. So we completely support it. And now we've given all candidates the opportunity to say this Mm -hmm. as we wrap up, though. So here's your chance here. Why should people vote for you? Well, I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's a two-person race. It's between Kennedy Stewart and myself. That's just the reality. And Kennedy Stewart has had four years on multiple files, be it housing or public safety, um, and he has failed. And uh, we've built an incredible team at ABC Vancouver, um, one with diverse lived experiences of with people that are pragmatic, that are doing it for the right reasons. And by the way, you're not voting for just Ben Sim. Uh, this is a team effort. And so you're voting for a complete slate of uh, councillors, park board and school board trustees. And together we can make a big difference. And I truly believe that if you elect a, a majority ABC council park and school board, we can do a lot of things that will make Vancouver more affordable, livable and safer for all of us. Well, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate that. Thank you. That's Ken Sim of ABC Vancouver running for mayor in the city and talking about the issue of housing, as we have been discussing with the major mayoral candidates all week. So that means we've now spoken to three. We still have a couple more to go. We'll speak to the MPA's Fred Harding tomorrow. Monday, we will speak with incumbent Kennedy Stewart about the issue of housing. It is a contentious one. Everybody has had slightly different versions. Like everybody has something different to say on this, which is what makes this election so critical, right? You want to know practical things, what can be done. And I think we are getting to that this week. Now, if you have questions that you would like to ask or comments about the issue of housing, send it to me, simi at cknw.com and keep listening because tomorrow we'll be hearing from the NPA's Fred Harding and Monday, yes, we'll be speaking with Kennedy Stewart. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Let's talk about multi-generational housing. Now, this is a living arrangement that has three generations under one roof. In lots of cultures, this is absolutely the norm. It is. But stats can showing it is increasingly becoming more common, too. How many people are living this way in Canada? How common is it? Our Raji Sohal joins us now for more on this. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, it has been popular in many cultures, as you say, for a long time, but it's becoming more common just in general across Canada, as is uh, more people living in a roommate situation later in life. So it's no longer just something that people do in their uh, late teens or early 20s. People are extending that into their 30s, into their 40s, some in their 50s, still living with roommates, still living in a multi-generational situation. So for me personally, um, it's very common in my culture, in Punjabi culture, to live in a multi-generational household. I personally bucked that trend in my house by moving out at 18 to go to school in another province, but that came with a price. I wasn't able to save as much. Uh, I didn't get into the housing market until much later in life. 
And, and so many young people are choosing to live at home for just that reason. The economic one is to, to save up instead of paying a rent and paying someone else's mortgage. It's to uh, start saving a little nest for yourself that with the hope that maybe one day you'll get into the market too. So there are obvious economic reasons for living multi-generational. And it's something that I think the province is going to need to pay more attention to and very soon, uh, possibly as one of the many solutions to BC's housing dilemma. I talked to Margot Hilbrecht. She's the executive director of the Vanier Institute on the Family. And she told me about the appeal of the multi-generational home. A lot of times people will cite housing affordability. So it allows costs to be shared by multiple generations in the family. So the parents and the grandparents can, can both contribute to and benefit from reduced housing costs. Uh, benefits are related to provision of care for both the younger family members, if there's a grandparent present who can look after them, and also to older family members who are in need of care themselves. Probably there has been a shift because we have more people who are doing it. And I think it's it does come down to affordability, but also cultural reasons as well. And then some, some people just have a preference to do it. So I think people are more accepting of the arrangement now. So we know that, for example, since uh, 2001, the, the rate of people, percentage of people living in multi-generational housing has increased since, uh, increased by 50%. And we now have about 2.4 million people who are in a multi-generational housing situation. So yes, I think that um, there's less and less stigma surrounding it, especially as houses become more and more expensive. Now, this is a great idea, Roger. I, I fully support this because I'm thinking about this more and more too with kids who are older and you think, well, you don't want them to move too far away. Plus you want to help them <laughs> yeah. make them afford something. And is it easier sure. if we all just kind of stay together? Yeah, and there are, you know, many reasons for that. Uh, studies have shown that grandparents who live in the same household as their grandchildren tend to lead happier lives, uh, that they're using more parts of their brain um, later in life to engage with the grandkids. I totally uh, see that happening with my own parents and their grandchildren who have lived in the house uh, for almost 10 years. They just moved out. That'll be a shift for the household. But she talked there also about cultural transference. And I look at how my brother's kids who uh, grew up in my parents' house, they speak their mother tongue. They speak Punjabi. Yeah, exactly. Whereas my children have no chance of learning Punjabi because I'm the only one in the household that speaks it. And uh, there's also just other kinds of skills transference that would happen. Also, she mentioned childcare, uh, having childcare in the house. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Major bonus. And I also hear from younger friends that of mine that are in their 20s um, that they are thinking of moving back in with their parents uh, once they have children. Listen, that, I don't... I I don't think there's anything wrong with this. I know that the, I think in some, for some people, there has been this stigma of like, oh, I can't ever move back in with my parents. That would what admit failure or something. But I think it's a natural, it's a natural thing. Oh, there is stigma. There's also the case that Simi, it won't work out. 
that uh, the house is too small or just the, the physical arrangement doesn't allow for enough privacy. Um, and then there's clashing of values too. So I think these things, it's going to sound crazy, but they actually need to be considered by our mayors. They need to be considered by our policymakers. Like how do we allow for red tape to be removed so that people can streamline the process? How do we change zoning laws so that people can uh, redesign or re uh, redo, renovate their home with this in mind, with multi-generational living in mind, because I think this trend is only going to increase. Yeah, that's a good point then. So how do you, you know, reconfigure your house to make room for more people? Or like, I think, you know, in some cultures, you think of it from the very beginning, you look for a house where that would be more adaptable. Yeah, absolutely. I have friends that have talked about uh, how they have a unit in their house that they've been using for Airbnb or using as a guest unit uh, or renting it out in general. And they have plans that the the parents will move in there when they eventually need care. But if you can do it from the ground up, that's incredible and very lucky uh, to have that in mind because it can, yeah, it can become too crowded in a house too quickly if it hasn't, if you didn't think initially about how to arrange living quarters uh, for multi-generational living. All good points. Raji, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. I know we like to think that, okay, COVID-19 is behind us. We have moved on. A lot of people think, yeah, I had it. No big deal, right? It was nothing. I got over it. No problem. Here's the thing. There's still so much research that is going on into the effects of COVID that it has on your body. And also the issue of long COVID is still with us. These are patients who can still show impacts of COVID, some kind of effects, maybe a year even after they've had COVID-19 or more. Let's talk about this latest study looking into the impacts of long COVID. Joining us now is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director of the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Centre. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning, Simi. What does this latest study tell us? Well, we now know that 25% and perhaps as many as 40% of individuals, adults, who get COVID have symptoms that persist in the long term. Two possibilities are that there are small amounts of virus that are persisting that we can't quite detect, but that are causing chronic symptoms. Another possibility is that the body's immune system, as it reacts against COVID to control it, after the COVID episode is passed, just doesn't turn off and stays on and continues to affect the body and continues to react against the body itself, something we call autoimmunity. The information in the paper that you just quoted is suggesting that in many cases, autoimmunity is at play. So it helps us define how to diagnose long COVID, looking for markers of autoimmunity, and gives us ideas of how we could develop treatments for it going forward. How big of a concern is long COVID now? How much of a mystery does it still remain? Oh, it's a great mystery. It's a huge concern. It's 25%. One in four people who get COVID don't recover within a couple of weeks. Some get better in several weeks to months, and some it goes on for a year, two years, perhaps even more. So it's a big uh, it's a huge concern uh, sort of going forward. And people are disabled. People can't work. They can't go back to their normal activity. So trying to understand what causes it is very important. And that's something that until now, we're not terribly clear. And this, this helps us understand that in many cases, it's just the immune system doesn't turn off. It continues to react against itself and causes symptoms 
and causes disability. Is there any similarity in the people who do get long COVID? Is there anything that we can say that puts you at a higher risk of getting it? Very interesting question. It is unclear on that point since, as we know, professional athletes, uh, uh, a former Vancouver Canuck, Brandon Sutter, has long COVID, and other people that have significant underlying diseases uh, also get long COVID. So really, there isn't a pattern as of yet. Now that we've identified markers of long COVID, that will allow us to screen large numbers of individuals quickly to try and detect these patterns going forward. Right. So you're, there's probably a lot we still don't know, right? Because do people, there are probably people out there who don't even know that this is what they have. Right. So I think people who've had COVID, what, when people come with nonspecific symptoms uh, going forward, my nonspecific said, I don't really know. I just don't feel right. I, can't, I have low energy. I'm tired. Uh, I get uh, fatigued more easily when I do sports, when I do exercise. Sort of, I can't quite put my finger on what's wrong. So one of the first questions that we ask now is, did you have COVID and when? And describe that episode uh, to me. So we think of long COVID. Uh, and and uh, put that uh, put that that forward for for discussion, and uh, and a lot of people won't necessarily associate with the symptoms they have with uh, the COVID episode that occurred perhaps remotely. Okay, so are some jurisdictions more advanced than others, Dr. Conway, in terms of studying this and trying to figure this out? Well, obviously UBC and uh, the uh, British Columbia in general has really done great work, as was uh, as was reported today. There are so many groups worldwide that are working on this. Uh, trying to work together to define what is long COVID, to define the syndrome, to define how we can diagnose it specifically with uh, certain markers, such as autoimmune markers, and then put forward ideas as to what treatments we could try to help these individuals that have the symptoms. But uh, yeah, we played a great role here in British Columbia in getting that science forward. It sounds like there is just such a huge wide, varied response to, to long COVID? Like, is anything, can anything be a symptom? Does, is there anything that surprises you on that list? Not really. I think, uh, obviously, uh, COVID's a respiratory virus, so chronic respiratory symptoms, being short of breath, uh, not having as high an exercise tolerance comes to mind. Uh, we know it affects uh, the brain, so people having difficulty thinking, having brain fog. And we know that it affects the body in general. The, it turns on the immune system. Uh, so being, being tired as a result of this, having muscle aches and so on. But many, many other things cause those very same uh, symptoms. So I think that being able to, 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 to say that there are some autoimmune markers that are associated with long COVID. If someone comes in and asks the question, do I have long COVID? We can now potentially start saying, well, we look for all of the autoimmune markers that are described in this recent uh, paper, and you have none of them. So whatever it is you have, we'll keep looking, but it's not looking like long COVID, and that helps us going forward. Does it concern researchers like yourself and doctors like yourself that people have tend, now tend to think of COVID as just a cold? They'll have it. It's not a big deal. Oh, that's huge. I think uh, COVID is, is, is not just a cold. It's an illness that uh, can, of course, uh, put you in hospital and potentially uh, cause death acutely. But now we're seeing that in, in one out of four, at, at a minimum, are going to have some sort of symptom that's going to last for several weeks. And I think that driving that point forward will really help us try to encourage people to, to not be tired of all this COVID talk and go out and get their vaccination because we vaccinated people tend not to get 
long COVID. That's sort of one observation that we've uh, that we've made. So there's another reason to get vaccinated. I was going to say that's a pretty important observation, isn't it? Absolutely. That's uh, that's. Uh, uh, just to, if you compare the predictors of long COVID, being uh, being unvaccinated is a strong predictor, yes. All right, Dr. Conway, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Fascinating stuff. Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director of the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Centre. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.